We're going to go ahead and get started. Wow, you guys quiet down much faster than they do in East Nashville, so let's have them take notes. I'm going to do a little activity here to start. I'm reading out of this book called The War of Art, uh, and it's, we're talking a little bit about resistance this morning. And so uh, this author has this to say. He says, the following is a list in no particular order of those activities that most commonly ex elicit resistance. And here's what I want you to do. When you hear an activity that you have engaged in in your life that has elicited resistance, I want you to raise your hand. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Participation. Okay. Are you ready? The pursuit of any calling in writing Painting, music, film, dance, or any creative art, however marginal or unconventional. Okay. The launching of any entrepreneurial venture or enterprise for profit or otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Any diet or health regimen. <laughs> yes, that's all of our hands. Okay. Any program of spiritual advancement. Any activity whose aim is tighter abdominals. Yes, a few of us, okay. Any course or program designed to overcome an unwholesome habit or addiction? Education of every kind. This is somebody who went to grad school, apparently. Any act of political, moral, or ethical courage, including the decision to change for the better some unworthy pattern of thought or conduct in ourselves? Some really spiritual ums in this room, okay. The undertaking of any enterprise or endeavor whose aim is to help others. Any act that entails commitment of the heart, the decision to get married, to have a child, to weather a rocky patch in a relationship. The taking of any principled stand in the face of adversity. And the author says this, in other words, any act that rejects immediate gratification in favor of long-term growth, health, or integrity, or express another way, any act that derives from our higher nature instead of our lower, any of these will elicit resistance. That's true, isn't it? That anything that is worth doing in this life is gonna elicit resistance, that's true. And what we find today in the passage that we're going to study in Nehemiah is that as much as that is true about any worthwhile human endeavor, that is especially true in the Christian life. That in the story of Nehemiah, we've been studying what it means to be a leader, right? We've been studying what it means to step into the story that God is about in the world, the story that God is writing in the world. And as we step into that story, what we find is we find who we were truly created to be as we step into the story that God is writing. What we've been talking about, the way we've been saying it at Midtown East, kind of summarizing uh, this plan that God has, is that God is about creating a holy people who will worship a holy God in a holy city. That's the theme of Nehemiah, and it really is the theme of all of Scripture. And when we step into that story, when we come into the stream of God's work in the world, that we will encounter resistance. It's a guarantee. And I'm going to use the whiteboard, since Randy said I could draw on this. On, on this. So uh, as, we, as we are talking about resistance this morning, we have to talk about the fact that we, we need to expect resistance in our lives. And that as we learn to expect it, and that as we confront it, what we see in our text today is that Nehemiah gives us 
two different ways that we push back, that we resist the resistance in our lives. And it's by remembering sounds so authoritative to write with chalk like this. Remembering and then fighting. These are the ways that we're going to engage with resistance that we'll see from our text this morning, that we need to expect it, we need to remember, and we need to fight. So if you would, uh, actually, Jenny Gilbert is going to read our scripture for us this morning. So Jenny, go ahead and come on up here. This is, if you have your Bibles, you can flip to Nehemiah 4. It's Nehemiah 4, 1 through 14. Betcha. Now when Sambalot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and not, let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that they the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rebel. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Thanks, Jenny. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you would come to us in the space of human history, that you would do a work amongst your people that would be written about, that we could read about, Lord. And we trust you this morning that this is not uh, some story of an ancient people from from long ago that has no impact on our lives. But Jesus, we, we claim by faith that this is our story, that we are in the story of your work to re- redeem and restore, to reconcile this world, and ask that you would teach us through it this morning. We, praise these thing, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So as we were going through that list of ways and places that we encounter resistance in our lives, uh, I'm assuming that pretty much all of you raised your hands, right? Did any of you not raise your hands? No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to do that, right? That if you did it, it's probably because you just weren't participating. We all experience resistance in our lives. It's, it's true about what it means to be a person on this earth. And like we said, that resistance is not only something uh, that we experience kind of in any uh, worthwhile human endeavor, but that's especially true as we engage in the Christian life. And we see that in our text this morning. It's very clear even in verses one through three, right? Sanballat, classic villain from the Bible, taunting the Jews, jeering at them. 
He says in the presence of his brothers, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Are they gonna take these stones that are in piles of rubble and like make a wall out of them, right? And what he's hoping to do by taunting the Jews is to break their will, to discourage them so much that they would leave off the work of building the wall. And then he's got his classic villain sidekick, Tobiah, the Ammonite. He says, yeah, what are they doing? If a fox goes up on the wall, they'll knock it over. Guys, that's funny. That's in the Bible, right? That someone would taunt like that, okay. So what they're doing, what they're hoping to do is through their taunts to discourage the people of God, but the people of God are not daunted. They keep building the wall. The wall is joined up to half its height. And then, uh, then they get even more angry. It says when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites, and what they're saying is all of the people that surrounded Jerusalem, when they heard the repairing of the wall was going forward, the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they plotted to come together and fight against Jerusalem to cause confusion in it. So as the work of God moves ahead, the anger of God's enemies increases. And it's not just true in this point in Nehemiah. It was true at the beginning of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah first comes to Jerusalem, that's when we get our first picture of Sambalot and Tobiah. And immediately they begin taunting him and taunting the Jews. Jeered at them and despised them. What is this thing you're doing? And it's not just chapter two, it's not just chapter four, it happens again in chapter six. So all throughout Nehemiah, there's this opposition that comes against the work that God is doing. Their goal is to stop the wall from being built. And so what we see here is that the opposition, uh, there is external opposition to the work of God. But what also happens in this passage is that the external opposition becomes internal through the taunts of these people, right? That the Jews start saying in their own voices the things that their enemies are saying. Look at verse 10. It says, in Judah it was said, so this is, the Jews are saying this now. The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And then in verse 13, or then in verse 12, it says, the Jews who live near them came to them from all directions and said to us 10, ten times, you must return to us. But there's all this pressure now. The people are saying in their own voices, we're not gonna be able to do this. We've gotta stop the work. The external pressure now becomes internal. Is that ever true for you? That as you step into uh, the work that God has for you in the world, that you face internal opposition? That's so real, isn't it? And, and what, what's true is that that internal opposition often arises from the external forces that are arrayed against us, just like it does for the Jews. There's an interplay of the internal and the external because what Scripture teaches us very clearly is that we do have an enemy. There are a lot of names for him in Scripture, right? Satan is one of them, the devil. There's spiritual forces of darkness and evil in the world. And for some of you, that may feel like an uncomfortable idea that there are spiritual forces of darkness. Uh, we could talk a lot about that. I'll just say this. Scripture is pretty clear that that's true, okay? 
So in the same way that God exists and is a force of like good and light in the world, that there are forces, spiritual forces that oppose God, that we have a spiritual realm that's all around us. And those spiritual forces of darkness are bent on opposing the work and the will of God in our world. It's true. And those external forces also find expression in the world around us and the people around us as they push back against the work of God. And it's so important, guys, that we would know to expect this kind of opposition. Jesus tells us that in John 16, He says, in this world, you will have trouble. It's true. He spends all of John 16 unpacking the ways that that trouble will look. And Jesus tells us that, he tells us to expect the trouble for a very specific reason. Because if we don't expect there to be trouble in the world, uh, we're gonna think that something is wrong when we encounter resistance. That when we push up against resistance in our Christian lives, we may believe that we're actually doing the wrong thing. When maybe nothing could be further from the truth that actually the resistance that we're bucking up against in our lives is a reminder or a, a check and uh, is something, an indicator that's telling us that we're on the right path, right? Like, have you ever tried to become a more emotionally healthy person in your life? Anybody? Yeah, okay. Uh, being emotionally healthy involves a lot of hard things. Some of them are like drawing boundaries, right? Uh, coming out of yourself and your own self-pity and obsession with yourself to actually see and care for other people where they are. Are those hard things? Yeah, do, they ever, do those things ever elicit resistance from the people around you? Yeah. So if you believe that becoming emotionally healthy is something that should be easy, if you don't expect there to be resistance, that when you grow into that in your life, you're gonna think, oh, something is wrong, I should probably change tracks. Well, that is not true at all. That's a part of becoming emotionally healthy. Or have you ever had a sin, have you ever had sin in your life? <laughs> okay, good, I'm glad we got a laugh here. That's a good, that's good. Uh, of course, right? Have you ever wanted to, uh, to have less sin in your life? and ever made a conscious effort to push against sin in your life? Yes. Yeah, okay, good, 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 okay, that's important too. So we're pushing, when you are pushing against sin in your life, is there resistance there? Yeah, absolutely there is. Have you ever wanted to be a part of God's work in the world where you would speak the name of Jesus to somebody else, maybe who doesn't know him? Have you ever, when you've done that, gotten some resistance from the person you're talking to? Like maybe like a weird look or... Maybe something stronger than that? Or have you ever wanted to participate in seeing God's kingdom come more fully in this city uh, by seeing justice done? By seeing Nashville, by doing work that as a part of Nashville becoming a more merciful, righteous place? Like the work of Napier, right? Is there gonna be resistance there? Absolutely. Internal and external, of course there's resistance there. And what this scripture teaches us is to expect it because if we don't expect it, we're gonna think that something is wrong. And it's not. That, that may be the very indicator that you're engaging in the work that God has called you to be about in this world. Okay, so we know to expect resistance in this life, especially in our Christian walk. What do we do with it? I want to focus this in here on verse 14. Nehemiah says, I looked and I arose and I said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. And I will just say, I love it when the Bible says do not be afraid because it is a reminder that people in the Bible were very afraid. 
And that's comforting to me because I often am very afraid, right? It's a reminder that fear is a really natural response to the resistance that we're going to face in this world. But Nehemiah doesn't leave us there. God doesn't leave us there. He says, do not be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. It can seem like a really uh, unexpected way that we would engage in pushing back against resistance in our lives, right? Remembering. But remembering, guys, it's a really critical part of the Christian life. Scripture talks about it all over the place. Because here's what's true about you and Christ, okay? When you, when you are connected to Christ, there is nothing that can separate you from his love, nothing. When you are in Christ, you have been given everything you need for life and godliness. And the Greek word there for everything means everything, okay? You've been given everything you need for life and godliness. That's true about you. You have every resource you need to live the Christian life. Do you know you have been given Holy Spirit power in your life? You have that. And there is nothing your enemy can do to take that away from you. Peter talks about how Satan is like a hungry lion prowling around looking for someone to, desire, or to, to devour. But you know, he can't devour you. All he can do is roar. But so often what happens is when we hear his roars, right, it makes us afraid and it makes us forget. And what we forget is that we've been given everything that we need for life and godliness. What we forget is that we have been given Holy Spirit power. What we forget is that there's nothing that he can do to snatch us out of Jesus' hands. And we can actually live, uh, Scripture says, unfruitful or ineffective lives because we have forgotten what Jesus has done for us. The antidote to that is that we would be a people who remember We'd be a people who remember. And it says specifically that we would remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Because what does that mean? Well, I don't know if you know this about the Bible, okay, but the Bible is like Wikipedia. It is full of hyperlinks, or which I guess we just call links these days, right? It's full of links. And that when you come across certain phrases in Scripture, they're, they're pointers back to other, other pages and other places in Scripture. And when you point back to another place in Scripture, you're not just looking at, like, the precise place that those two or three words were quoted before. It's pulling forward all of the context of that, of that Scripture in, into this Scripture. So that's what's happening here. When Nehemiah says, the Lord who is great and awesome, he's pulling forward uh, the book of, basically the book of Deuteronomy, specifically this, this, uh, these verses right around Deuteronomy 7. Everyone's like, oh, of course, Deuteronomy 7. Okay, no. So let's talk about Deuteronomy 7, right? In Deuteronomy, Moses is before the people of Israel, and he's giving them, uh, this is a set of sermons. And he's reminding them, he's telling them, remember what God has done for you before you go into the promised land. Remember, he says to the people of Israel, you have a God who has, who has over time, consistently, he, he's a God who has fought for you. Moses tells the people, remember when you were slaves in Egypt? When you were enslaved in Egypt, your God came and fought for you. He freed you at the Red Sea and he defended you from Pharaoh's armies. And he says, that God is going to go with you. He's going to go before you into the promised land and he's going to defend you in this land that he's bringing you into. 
He says, remember your God. You shall not be in dread of them. This is what Moses tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7.23. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and an awesome God. What he's reminding the Israelites about is that they have a God who is a warrior, a divine warrior who is fighting for them. That's a divine warrior we need because we have an enemy. We have an enemy who is opposed to the plans and the works of God in the world. And let's just remind ourselves, okay, what the opposition is against, right? The, the opposition, the, the resistance is not against uh, Christianity in our world, okay? It's not, the resistance is not against a specific political platform. It's not even against a worldview. The resistance is against a person, against the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And you know what the values of that kingdom are? Love and justice and peace and mercy. So to be in opposition to the person of Jesus is to be in opposition to those things, is to be in opposition to God's redemptive, reconciling, restorative work in the world. When Sambalot and Tobiah are mocking what the people of God are doing, they're mocking God and his work to restore and redeem the world. And the promise that we have here is that our God is a mighty warrior who will certainly bring about his promises to redeem and to restore and to reconcile. And so as uncomfortable as we can be with kind of like warfare language in the Bible, what is true about our God is that he is a fierce warrior for those things, for love and for justice, for righteousness, for reconciliation, for redemption and for restoration. And we see that most clearly through the person and work of Jesus Christ, don't we? That when Jesus was on the earth, we see this in the Gospels, right? That Jesus goes throughout, uh, goes throughout Israel, he's casting out demons. He's pushing back the forces of darkness. He's healing and he's bringing life. He's reversing the curse and sin and death. And finally, on the cross, what we see is that he strikes the killer blow against sin and death. He tells us that on the cross and through the resurrection, sin and death have been defeated. And the forces of darkness in this world, the enemies of Christ, the spiritual, uh, spiritual forces that oppose him, Colossians 2.15 says that on the cross, they were openly mocked and put to shame. That through the weakness and the service and the self-sacrificial love of Jesus, the enemies that stand against God's people were defeated. And that together, we look forward to a day when we will see that final victory come to pass. Because Jesus is gonna come back. And he's gonna come back with a sword and he's gonna bring justice. And what he's gonna do is he's gonna set up this city. A city that's full of justice and righteousness and mercy. A city that's safe and full of light and peace. Where there are a holy people worshiping a holy God in this holy city. And it'll be a city that doesn't need walls anymore because there will be no threats against it. That's what our divine warrior, King Jesus, has promised that he's gonna do in this world. So when Nehemiah says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome, he's saying, remember that God. And remember that that God who Nehemiah saw only in part, but we see now in full because we have the revelation of Jesus Christ, remember that that God is the God who is fighting for you. It's the God who has already won the victory. So when you experience 
uh, resistance. You can expect it, and you can remember that you have a God who has already conquered it and has promised that he has overcome the world. So in John 16, when Jesus says, you will have trouble, he also says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. That's true. And that call to remember then draws us into that fight ourselves. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. What Nehemiah is saying is because you have a God who has fought for you, who fights for you, now you can pick up, pick up the weapons uh, that you have in the spirit and you can fight for yourself. Internally and externally. Okay, so let's talk about what that means. Uh, one of the things, well, a few of the things that are true about our enemy, okay? Uh, scripture says he is uh, an accuser, an accuser of the brethren. Scripture says he's a deceiver. He's the father of lies. And those lies often kind of come out in a, in a they, he speaks out of both sides of his mouth. He's like a snake, right? He's got a forked tongue. So when you're engaging with God's work in the world, right, what Satan wants to tell you is, it's not worth it. Don't bother. It's too hard. Don't pick it up. Right? That's one of the ways he loves to deceive us, is to tell us that God's work in the world doesn't matter. It's too big. And that as soon as we step into it, and we experience the resistance that we've been talking about expecting, what he tells us is, oh, it's so hard. It's too hard for you. You want to get involved in this? Right? And you know, anytime you've stepped into the work of God in the world, you're going to make mistakes, right? As you do it. And he's going to take those and he's going to accuse you with them. Who are you? Who are, who are you to care about this? Who are you to be involved in this? You see, so there's the deceiving and the accusing that both go on there. Or what about when it comes uh, to, to sin in our lives? That there's the deceiving side that Satan would say to us, hey, sin, what's the big deal? Who is it hurting? Why does it matter? Why do you care so much? That rolls us right into kind of a false sense that sin doesn't really matter. Or into a sense of pride. But well, I've conquered most of the sin in my life. I think I'm doing pretty well. He loves to deceive us with, senses of, with, with pride and with self-confidence, with arrogance. But then what happens as soon as we sin? Right, we get the other side of it. We get the accuser. Oh, you think you're a Christian? And you act like that? That's what you said last night? That's where you went this weekend? That's what you, that's what you, that's what you, that's what you? And that, that accusing turns us in on ourselves. It fills us with shame and with self-contempt, with self-pity, and it becomes a prison. And the shame and the shoulds become so loud that eventually Satan doesn't have to say anything because we are shooting all over ourselves, right? Do you guys know what that's like? Man, that is a prison, isn't it? You want to talk about how you become unfruitful and ineffective in the Christian life? It's becoming obsessed with shame. Forgetting what it means that Jesus has forgiven you. And so the, the fight that we pick up now is the fight against all of those lies that we are playing as tapes in our own heads. But the fight that we're called to first is this internal struggle of ourselves believing and growing in and becoming more deeply rooted in the gospel. 
sometimes on a really practical level for me, it looks like remembering the promises of Scripture and, and reading them to myself because I can't, I forget them. And I've got to hear them. Or when I forget them, sometimes I need someone else to say them to me. And that's true about the way that we fight, that we need people next to us. That's clear throughout all of Nehemiah, right? We've been talking about that a lot, that we need the people of God to be part of this with us. But no, no amount of people around you can take responsibility for the battle that you have to fight in your own heart, in your own head. People can offer you all the help in the world, but if you're not willing to pick up your sword and do that fighting, you've abandoned yourself to ineffectiveness and unfruitfulness, to forgetting. That remembering is an active part that you are called to in Christ. And in doing that, you've got to remember, you're not, you're not picking up fresh forgiveness. You're, not, uh, you're, you're stepping into, you're reminding yourself of what is already true about you because of what Jesus has done for you. Something that never stopped being true. That you, in your sin, that your sin doesn't separate you from Jesus. Your sin is actually the place that Jesus desires and delights to draw near to you. That's true. That's how we combat our sin, is remembering the love and the goodness of God, not trying to beat ourselves up and show God that we've done enough to get back in his good graces. That's the opposite of the gospel. We don't fight by inflicting penance on ourselves. We, we fight sin in our lives by remembering what Jesus has done for us. Right, so that's, that's the internal battle that we're talking about that you and I are called to wage as we remember our God who is and has already fought for us. And there's also an external component to that as well, right? But as we go out into the world, that we would be willing to engage with the forces of darkness and evil that are pressing up against the love and the justice and the mercy of God in this world, in our city. That you'd be fighting for the hearts and the minds and the souls of the, of the, the people who are right around you by speaking the beautiful name of Jesus and by loving people with the beautiful love of Jesus. But that's how we engage uh, engage in this fight with the world around us. And we've got to remember that when we do that, that the weapons that we use in that fight uh, are not the weapons of the world. Not the weapons of this world. It's not raw power that we're bringing to bear on people. It's not manipulation. It's not even having the best, most tightly, logically constructed arguments, although the arguments are important at times, okay? That the way that we push back the forces of darkness in this world are in the way of the ways that Jesus did that. With self-sacrificial love, self-giving self love in weakness and in humility. That if the forces of darkness were openly mocked and put to shame on the cross, right? How much more is that true for us? As my grandma would say, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for you, you know? That if that's the way that Jesus went about defeating the, 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 uh, the forces of darkness in this world, why should we expect that we would defeat them in any other way? That's, it, it's in our weakness, in our self-giving love for the people around us that we push back darkness. That we pick up our swords because our Jesus has, has already fought for us and is fighting for us. That he's promised that the victory, the final victory, has already been won. We were talking this week about, uh, there's this church in Germantown, here in Nashville, that two weeks ago had a um, Molotov cocktail thrown inside of it. 
I was, I was like, I was surprised to learn that this week. And the building didn't burn down, but it was filled with smoke, and uh, they have a, a long way to go before the kind of the church is repaired. And this is what their pastor had to say uh, after, after that event. In Nashville, guys. He says, we are not receiving it as an attack. We are receiving it as a gift. It's a gift from the Lord. It's a gift from the Lord to remind us of our mission, of why we're in Nashville, why we're in downtown Nashville, and it's affirming that we're in the right place. The church exists because this stuff exists. This clarifies the need for the mission of the church. This difficult moment serves as a reminder of that mission. I told my staff before we talked with the media, this is proof that, we, that we're needed here. I'm not looking at this as persecution. I'm not looking at this as we're victims. We're going to have trouble in this life, so these things should never surprise us. In light of this, we're being reminded of our purpose, our mission, and the necessity for us to be right here. I have never been more excited than I am right now in the life of our church. I'm super pumped about what God is doing through this situation. Our message to this perpetrator? Don't come through the window, come through the door. That's the gospel, isn't it? As we talk about remembering and picking up the fight, going, running into this fight, that that's, that's the spirit with which we engage because that's the spirit of our Jesus. That's the spirit that lives inside of us. We would expect the resistance. We would remember our God and that we would fight. Let me pray for us. Father, thankful, we're thankful for your word. Jesus, we're, we're thankful that we don't have to be blindsided uh, by the opposition and the resistance that we experience in this life. And we know that you, Jesus, have experienced it all for us, that you know what it's like uh, to experience opposition. Jesus, we thank you and praise you that you've overcome it. And that because of that, Lord, you promise us that our final victory has already been sealed in your victory. And so we ask that even as we worship here together this morning, that you would strengthen us, that you would help us to remember your goodness and your love for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.